0: Welcome into the Nick Bob Podcast. Uh, Here we go. Lots to uh, tackle and dive into today. It's going to be kind of a a, a casserole buffet of a variety of things uh, that we're going to dive into. Talk some some football, talk some hoops. Uh, Before we dive into all that, we've got a mailbag as well at the end of this pod. Uh, Reminding everyone, subscribe to the podcast. Click that subscribe button. That way... You make sure that you always get every single episode right there on your phone, wherever you get podcasts. All you got to do is hit play and boom, you won't miss any of the great stuff we got rolling on the pod. Still uh, in Indianapolis, taping from uh, from Indy. Yes, I'm still here. I've been here what seems like for 55 years. Uh, I've been doing a, a, a two Butler games. I got another Butler game, Butler in Minnesota on Tuesday night from Hinkle Fieldhouse. The Gavit Games, Big East, Big Ten, super excited uh, about that one always uh, Indie is one of my favorite places to go i've had i i've had a blast here i've i've eaten my butt off i they got a couple of places of course t- tonight actually uh, i'm taping this on a sunday i went to went to st elmo's figured i'd go check out the, the you know get me a steak i've been there before. four places delicious i've gone to there's a breakfast place cafe Patachu. That is uh, amazing. Like one of the best, if not the best breakfast places I've ever been to in my life. So uh, I've just been immersed in working out at the hotel gym, eating at various establishments in Indianapolis, calling Butler games, watching film, and uh, and yeah. Uh, and, and telling the housekeeping people that I'm good. I don't need any more towels. I'm fine. That's pretty much what it is. I've kept my uh, do not disturb thing on my door for what What feels like it's going to the point where I feel like housekeeping's going to talk to the front desk and be like, do we is he still is who whoever's in the room blank be blank 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 is he still alive are we are we sure this guy's still alive uh but yeah, I just you know i'm I'm kind of weird like that I don't love people coming in and out of my room and all that stuff. I got my podcasting equipment all set up, you know just I'm fine, all right, I got enough towels, everything's fine i got I'm also one of those guys that I don't like to make my bed after I sleep in it. I'm one of those people if I find a good this is where I'm kind of weird. If I find a good sleeping position and situation with my pillows and the blankets, all stuff, I want to keep it like exactly as it was, and then I just I crawl right back into that exact same spot, and boom, your boy's catching REM sleep like nobody's business. So I don't want people coming in making the bed, and the way they not to go all Jerry Seinfeld on I mean, you, the way they tuck the the bottom of the bed when they're like, sheesh. I mean, the first thing I do. Anytime I check into a hotel room, just untuck the bottom of the the covers. I mean, who can sleep with it tucked like that? I mean, you're gonna break your ankles. Like that'd be horrible. But yeah, I got I got a great sleeping situation going. I don't want the bed made, so that's what's going on in in, in my life. Okay, uh, enough about my nonsense. Um, one basketball thing before we get to the, some football in the mailbag. I mean, I actually watched the Southern Utah game. Uh, today, uh, on, you know, I, I mean, listen, what are you gonna say? The, obviously the Fred Hoiberg era is off to a rough start. Oh, and two lost in overtime to Southern Utah. Uh, you know, and here's my thing. And I just, everyone relax, just resist the urge to freak out. That's kind of the default mode for a lot of Husker fans. Just given everything that's happened over the last 15, 20 years with football and basketball. It's just uh, anything, anytime anything bad happens, everybody just loses their mind. And I talked about you know trying your hardest to not allow football frustration to spill over into basketball, and, and I still believe that. But just I'm, just resist the temptation to lose your mind. I mean, one loss in football, it feels like a huge deal because it kind of is a huge deal, but it's different in basketball. One loss in basketball isn't as big of a deal. And that's not to make excuses for Nebraska. They haven't played well. I mean, you don't have to be James Naismith to see that, and Hoiberg would tell you as much. I mean, they're, they've struggled. Now, they're going to get better. And yes, we can, you know, w- you know, we can do the whole song and dance of yelling and screaming and questioning everything and all that stuff. I'm just not going to do that. I'm not going to do it. They played two games. Two. I went over in the last pod about all the different, you know, I mean, it's they got a bunch of low major transfers with some JUCO guys and some high school freshmen. I mean, they're trying to survive in Division One basketball with their biggest guy as a 17 year old Frenchman in Ivan Drago. Who's you know got a good body, but he's got a ways to go. Kevin Cross is a six eight, you know, hybrid four five having I mean, it's just it's it's hard. It's it's hard, and that they've uh, you know, they're going to improve. And this was always going to be a weird year. Let's not do this whole thing. I mean, I don't know who. I'm not saying that we all knew that this was going to be a a rough year and it, and it's, it, listen, they can put it together and still have a a good year. But I mean, I don't know if, was anyone thinking that this year was going to be, you know, I'll tell you Nebraska to be a one seed. I mean, what are people like this was always going to be kind of an interesting, weird year with a weird retooled roster full of new pieces. Right. I mean, let's not like, let's, let's not switch up things here a weekend of the season. I mean, they need someone not named Cam Mack and occasionally Gervais Green to step up and make some plays. I mean, we knew heading into the year, size was going to be a problem with this team. It's been a problem in the first couple of games, have gotten out rebounded in both games. Uh, and they haven't been able to make up for it with knocking down threes. I mean, when you don't, you know, when when you don't rebound the ball well and and you're a little you're still trying to find yourself with chemistry and execution, the great equalizer is just making shots, threes, and that goes for free throws as well. And then Nebraska also, man, that Southern Utah game, I'd love to see a shot chart. I feel like they missed a million shots right at the rim. You know? I mean, they've shot it poorly. And and with how Hoiberg wants to play, pace and threes, those are like the big things, right? Well, you can't establish pace if you aren't rebounding consistently. And Nebraska hasn't shot it well. So, I mean, it is what it is right now. And again, outside of Cam Mack, nobody's really played well. And listen, Cam Mack has had moments where he, it's it's – been a little erratic. So it's not rocket science. It's it's an interesting piece together roster, which to a certain extent was a little bit unavoidable with all the departures of everyone leaving. And and those pieces got a fine chemistry and it's still a work in progress. And what can cover up for a bunch of those issues in the meantime is making shots. And Nebraska hasn't shot it well at all. So uh there you go. That's my Nebraska diagnosis right now. I mean, listen, I could fire up the film and show you different areas where you know I thought their zone offense wasn't very good for the most part. I thought they settled for too many threes. Uh, you know, I think there's certain guys that haven't played well that they were counting on to to really hit the ground running. Uh, but you know, at the other day Cam Max at the line, he makes his two free throws. It's ball game. I put up on Twitter one play where Fred Hoiberg drew up a gorgeous play to. Uh, kind of screen the top of the zone, let Cam Mack get in the middle and then throw a lob to Gervais Green with the tied 72-72 in overtime. And it it's drawn up perfectly. It works, except the pass is errant and Gervais Green bobbles it and they don't score. So, like, and they were up 14 at one point. And so there's just there's a bunch of different things that, that uh, you know, if one or two plays go a different direction – you know nebraska's one and one and that could have been a game where you know what they're feeling pretty good because they won an emotional game that was close but you know they're they're going to get uh, some time now uh, almost a week to really hit the practice floor and continue to work on some things for South Dakota state comes to town. I'm actually calling that game on BTN super fired up. I'll be at PBA doing a TV for that one. So uh, really excited to, to watch Nebraska continue to improve. Just enjoy the process guys. You know, it's not to say that you can't be upset when, you know, Nebraska and win, but it's just like, this, it's, you know, just enjoy the process of watching this team grow. Cause they're gonna, they are gonna, uh, Man, uh, you know, so this weekend with football, this past weekend. You know when Nebraska off by week. You know, I'm I'm of course you got Bama LSU and and you know you turn that on and man, I'm watching Joe Burrow light up Bama and all but clinch the Heisman trophy. And man, you start to think will will Joe Burrow become one of the all-time what ifs for Nebraska football? I mean, Nebraska didn't recruit him out of high school, maddening given the family connections. And then when Frost took the job and 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 Joe Burrow was going to hit the the transfer market, Frost didn't recruit him either. And you know he basically he being Frost chose Adrian Martinez over Joe Burrow, which at the time I agreed with. When I was still doing my radio show, I was I was vocal about that. So I don't want to do this whole thing where I'm a Monday morning quarterback two years after the fact trying to change my stance. I liked the idea when Frost took the job of developing a young quarterback, a freshman, more so than bringing on a grad transfer. And 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 that was the thing. You know when 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 you go to the grad transfer market, oftentimes you bring on a grad transfer when you have a team that is just a quarterback away and ready to win like right now. Remember Russell Wilson in Wisconsin in 2011? They had everything locked in except a quarterback. Boom, Russell Wilson come in, they, they pop, right? Nebraska wasn't ready to win. So although there was a lot that made sense with, from a family tie standpoint with you know Burrow coming to Nebraska, I just don't, I don't know if it was an ideal situation other than that. Now now that we see how good Joe Burrow is and we see how Martinez has struggled in his sophomore season, it's obviously frustrating, right? But sometimes that's life. If we all had the answers to the test, we'd all get 100%, right? But damn, to think that Nebraska could have had Joe freaking Burrow, the guy that is going to win the Heisman Trophy and potentially lead LSU to a title, ugh, that, that is a, uh, that's, a t- that's a tough one to swallow for everyone. There's no doubt about that. Um, you know, and so that was kind of interesting to to watch during the bye week. And so you do, you know, you got the, Nebraska's had their second bye week and they, they got three games left. You got Wisconsin this weekend, then at Maryland and Iowa, and you see where everything's at. And it certainly feels like the sky is falling around here with Nebraska. I mean, I, I was really thinking about it. You could make a case. This has been one of the most traumatic seasons of Nebraska football in the last 20 years. And that is saying something. Think about all the 2007, 2004, 2017. Like you've had a lot of like iconic, um, disastrous seasons and moments. But like stop stop and smell the roses if you, if you think about it now. I mean, Nebraska, when they started the season, preseason top 25 picked to win the West. Now they're staring down the barrel of potentially not going to a bowl game. College game day was in Lincoln, Nebraska at one point. Adrian Martinez went from a Heisman contender to some people wanting him benched. And then one of the most exciting offensive weapons, Maurice Washington, has basically been kicked off the team. I, it's been like, you couldn't, i have you know, I'm sure like all oh, you, you talk to different people about Husker football, like in a million years, you couldn't have, I couldn't have, dreamed up this first 21 games or whatever of the Frost era. I mean, it's just, it's been like anything that can go wrong has gone wrong. It's just been nuts. And within that, the thing that has been so surprising, like there has even been a shift from some fans eating up whatever Frost or any coach says to people now being cynical and even eye rolling with some stuff that maybe Frost would say, or even Zach Duval was uh, was was on the radio and was talking about different things with strength conditioning, and you get you 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 get you know the cynical a holes on Twitter, you know, and it's like man, it's already gotten to that. It's already gotten to that, but not all is lost. I'm going to try my best here to lay out how all that could change. Now, again, it's gun to my head. Do do I think this happens? Maybe, probably not. But here's how everyone's feeling a lot different around Christmas and and New Year's. Because, listen, there's still three games to be played. Still got to go snap on your helmet and go play. Here's how it changes. If Nebraska wins two of the final three games, meaning you would upset one of Iowa or Wisconsin, two thorns in your side that are at the top of the, the, the Big Ten West that, have, that Nebraska struggle with, you, you upset one of those two teams and then go beat a pretty bad Maryland team. Now, is not very good themselves, but it's, I mean, listen, that's a game that, you know, it's not like Maryland's a world beater. You do that, you're going to a bowl game. And then if Nebraska were then to get that opportunity and go win the bowl game, and during that entire time you see clear cut strides and progress and improvement, I'm telling you, people will be feeling pretty good going into next season. Not great, but pretty good. Imagine someone telling you at you know, Riley's first year that hey, you know, in the offseason, people are gonna be feeling pretty good. Remember when when they got fifty plus hung on them at Purdue and they they started what three and five? Remember they upset Michigan State at the end of the year and then there was that weird loophole of them being somehow eligible to make a bowl be, even though they won five regular season games because of some academic stuff, and they went and played well in, against UCLA in the Foster Farms Bowl and all of a sudden everyone's like, yeah, Nebraska's got it figured out. I'm just speaking from the standpoint of just what the climate is ar- like around the program. Because there is something to that making a difference. I'm telling you, I don't think if Nebraska wouldn't have upset Michigan State, played well in the bowl game, had good vibes going into 2016, they wouldn't have started 7-0. and I really don't think they would have. And so now you're faced with a similar scenario. You're sitting here with four wins, three games left. You go win two of these final three games, meaning you beat one of Iowa, Wisconsin, go beat Maryland, and then go to a bowl game and win I think people will be feeling decent because contrary to the outsiders, I don't, I really don't think the majority of Husker fans thought Nebraska was going to win the West. That's what's so funny about like some of the fans be like, Oh, the media hyped up the the, the local media pumping out the coolant. I don't, I mean, I don't think Sippel or Chatel or Dirk or Sam or, you know, or any other, anybody on the radio, like noise, nobody was really saying Nebraska going to definitely win the West. I know I wasn't. All Husker fans wanted to see, all I wanted to see, was progress and a team getting, quote-unquote, close. Close to punching through and winning the division. And the most frustrating thing beyond everything else is the fact that Nebraska feels just as far or maybe even farther away than they did prior to Frost's arrival even. But if Nebraska can go win two of these last three regular season games, go to a bowl game, win that game, people will have ultimately gotten what they want, and that's to feel like it's getting closer. And it's, listen, you can sit there and go, no way. It's possible. It's not, I would say it's not likely based on what we've seen from this team, but it's possible. It's possible. Last thing before we get to the mailbag. You know, I've said this for years. As we're kind of going, looking in the the with the Riley thing a couple years ago, I've said this for years. I I think Mike Riley was doomed to fail from the moment he got the Nebraska job because he wasn't equipped to to have success here. He just he wasn't a good enough coach. Uh, I just you know, I mean, he was a sixty two year old career five hundred coach that had spent his entire career in the West Coast, and you know, I mean, in some ways, in some ways, Riley was exactly what he was. He always was a five hundred coach. Was good in some spots, upsetting a few teams, and bad in some other spots. And like that's who he always was was who he was in Nebraska. That's what's kind of funny about. It. But I've I've always thought that Mike Riley made two huge mistakes. The first one was he he tried to square peg round hole his quarterback situation with Tommy Armstrong the first two years. I think he he should have gotten his style of quarterback in right away. That's number one. But then, number two, in terms of the big mistake Riley made, was firing Mark Banker after year two. You can go back check the tape sixteen twenty. I was adamant. I was one of the only ones that was adamant that that was a huge mistake. The defense was making progress, and the change from Mark Banker to Bob Diaco led to regression on that side of the football and ultimately their demise. I hesitate to even bring this up because by talking about it, I kind of legitimize it. But the last thing this program needs is more change. I know the easy solution to things in life is to fire, 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 just fire him. Just fire just change, change it, fire, fire, fire. But to 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 the there has there has to be changes on this staff and frost is going to have to fire some people to that crowd. I say, relax. The one, one of the things that has gotten Nebraska into this mess is the lack of continuity and constant change from, from head coaches to position coaches, to coordinators. Since we're talking about defense, think about this since 2014, since 2014, Nebraska has had four different defensive coordinators. John Papuchis, Mark Banker, Bob Diaco, Eric Chenander. You've got to give something a chance to develop. And I think the defense has actually taken strides this year. But I just think making massive changes would be a shaky road to go down. That's all I'll say about that because I, you know, again, by talking about it, you legitimize it. But man, the last thing this program needs, in my opinion, is just more changes. That's how I see it. Okay, let's get to uh let's get to the mailbag. Uh I I I got a few questions uh want to dive into over the last few weeks. Uh, you know, got some on Facebook, on Twitter, on email. Remember, my the 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 podcast email is nick at nickbaugh.com. Anytime you want to you know spout something off get a mailbag question in whatever hit me up. Uh let's dive into uh to a few uh cuz there were some some interesting ones. We'll get some uh, some some light ones early. Uh Brian on Facebook says, "What college hoops venue that you have not yet been to as a player or broadcaster would you most like to call a game at?" I I, I would say the answer is Cameron Indoor, obviously where Duke plays, but what's weird about that is it's actually the broadcast position is you're like up in like the like you're at the, on the ceiling. You're not court side. You're like up in the rafters, like in a nest. So I actually think from like a broadcasting standpoint, it would be kind of bizarre. But to me, when I, I've been at Rupp arena, I played there when I was with Kansas where Kentucky plays. Uh, I've never been in the Dean dome. Uh, I've been to the palestra. Uh, obviously been to Hinkle Fieldhouse, going to call another game there on Tuesday. So I've, I've been to a lot of iconic venues. Cameron Indoor is the one though, that, that to me is, uh, is the one that I most want to want to go to. No doubt about it. Uh, Troy emails in, he had a bunch of questions. I had to only answer a couple. He asked, uh, does coach McDermott need to change anything they're doing in practice or training to avoid these injuries? And, you know, my answer to that, first of all, is I don't think there's anything Coach Mack can do with some of these injuries, you know, a compound fracture or, you know, a guy certain guy tears his knee or whatever. I mean, some some of the stuff's just kind of uh, you know, the the nature of sports. But I do think one thing that that Coach Mack talked about in my my, you know, preview podcast conversation with him was they did make a change at the strength coach position. You got a new guy that is uh, that, that Greg McDermott is really, really excited about. Uh and yeah, you know, I, I talked to Christian Bishop after the uh, after the exhibition game, and he said that he is well. First of all, Christian Bishop's put on like twenty pounds, and he said his body feels great. And I think that's the big thing that that this new strength coach is is like injury prevention, all those kinds of things. Now, it, but as as we're seeing with Nebraska football, it takes a while for the effects and the benefits to take hold when you make a change with the with a strength coach. So I think uh, there's nothing Greg McDermott can do, but I think what he has done will only help. Uh, in the long run, but some of the stuff, you know, it's just kind of freak deals, you know. Uh, Troy also asked uh, about what do you see coming from the NCAA investigation into Creighton? I honestly have no idea, guys. I I think, you know, Creighton has cooperated and gone through the investigation and are awaiting word from the NCAA. Um, Obviously, when you kind of Look over at what else has happened in this this NCAA FBI world. Obviously, the Kansas thing is a little nerve wracking for anyone that was named in that FBI case because basically the NCAA threw the kitchen sink at Kansas and Bill Self. Uh and so I don't know. I, I think the one thing that makes sense from Creighton's standpoint is you know, Creighton has kept Preston Murphy on administrative leave. They have not fully fired him. Now, he's not around and coaching and all that stuff, but he's not fired. And my read on this is the reason he's not been fired is, number one, I think Creighton truly believes they did nothing wrong. I I believe them, by the way. And firing Preston Murphy would almost be an admission of guilt or wrongdoing. You know what I mean? Like the optics of that is like, okay, if you don't feel like if if you don't think you did anything wrong, why'd you get rid of the guy? You know what I mean. Now I also think there's some legal aspects of it too for from Preston Murphy's standpoint, but that's kind of my read on it. I, I don't know what else to say. Here, here's the one thing you also got to keep in mind is. This, there's this new NCAA infractions committee, like this panel, and there is no precedent to go off of because it's brand new, because it's different. This isn't like a court of law. If the NCAA thinks you did something wrong, they can slap you with sanctions. There doesn't necessarily have to be a smoking gun or concrete evidence that nails a team or coach or program, which I think for one is a slippery slope to go down, but that's kind of the reality of the situation. Think about it. Think about it with this KU stuff. So Jim Gatto of Adidas testified under oath in federal court that Bill Self didn't know anything about the payments. Bill Self knew nothing. And yet the NCAA is still throwing potential sanctions at Kansas and at Bill Self. So you know what the NCAA is basically saying? They're basically saying, yeah, we think Jim Gatto lied under oath yeah, we we don't believe we we don't believe that. Which is crazy. Obviously, that's gonna be the, the main pillar at which Kansas fights this of saying, listen, like this guy was under oath, either all this testimony was a lie or all of it was true, you can't pick and choose. Da, 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 da. So to answer the question, what is gonna happen? I have no idea no idea because it's a new era with this new NCAA infractions committee panel and and the criteria they are operating under is totally new. So I don't, I'm telling you, man, I don't know. I have no idea what to expect. Another question from Troy on Facebook. It says, uh, Nick, what advice would you give to parents locally with children at different stages of their basketball path to help their kids progress to a possible scholarship offer? Uh, youth, middle school, early high school, high school, junior, senior, all that stuff. I, I would answer it like this. First, let the kids fall in love with the game. Because if the true love for the sport and the process of playing it and all that isn't there, it, it 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 won't matter. Because ultimately, it'll it'll catch up. You know. So when they're young and they're growing up, just relax and cultivate fun, and the process of falling in love with the game of basketball. Don't get them in too deep with, you know, a ball handling coach and a and a this and a that and heavy duty stuff because they're they they could maybe get burned out. So that'd be number one. But beyond that, my, my biggest advice, uh, shooting. Have your kid work on shooting. Because there is a place on darn near every team at any level for guys that can shoot the ball. That'd be my thing. Work your tail off with your jump shot. Get a bunch of shots up. Get to where if you are open, it's automatic. With where the game is headed, shooting has never been more valuable. So, so that would be my advice on a specific skill. I mean, I know for me, you know, not to act like I was the the greatest thing since sliced bread, but I used to get up at, you know, six o'clock in the morning and go over to Southeast when I was in like gosh, seventh and eighth grade, and I would shoot for an hour before I'd go to middle school. They had one of these old shooting machines that you know they you guys have seen the, where they have the ones that actually like pass it back out to you. This was like a rack that like that would roll the ball all the way back out to you to three-point line. It took like 8 years to set up, but I would shoot on that every morning. And ultimately the skill that got me to Division 1 basketball was I could shoot it. So that'd be my advice on a specific skill. Um it, Another question is what advice would you give players uh to attract scholarship offers, assuming academics and off the court stuff are not an issue, but maybe they are, they are not the most talented basketball player. Um, I mean, I assume he's talking about basketball here. I think the, listen, the reality is, and this isn't to like be a Debbie Downer, but the reality is the odds are, are of people getting a Division I scholarship are really low. Think about this stat. I, I screenshotted this like a year ago because I was just blown away by it. The estimated probability of competing in college athletics. So this is according to NCAA, the NCAA's research. You want to take a guess of what percentage of high school basketball players go Division One? 1%. Think about that. 1%. Overall, percentage of high school players to go to any level, Division One, Division Two, or Division Three—is is 3.4%. 3. Crazy, right? So just realize it's really hard. It's really, really hard. It is really hard. But I will say this. You know, you want a scholarship and you aren't off the charts talented. I think there are are two things. Number one, win. Win. Be, Be on a team that wins. And number two is, you better be off the charts with all the other intangible stuff that you can control. Again, this is assuming you're not the most talented guy in the world, or maybe you're 5'10 and not 6'5 or whatever. Like, you, you better be off the charts with all the intangible stuff. Your intangibles better be amazing. Your effort, your body language, how coachable you are, how you interact with your teammates. Because let me tell you, college coaches, if they're looking at a player that isn't the most talented guy and that player's effort is shaky and inconsistent, his body language kind of stinks and he's not overly coachable, they're not even going to give you another minute. They're not even going to give you another minute. So you better be off the charts with stuff like that. Next question uh, comes via email from Nathan. He says, "Nick, I'm picking up on the the Twitter chatter about Hoiberg and his anti mid range approach. I'm intrigued by this and not quite sure I understand. Is it a personnel or analytical approach?" Uh, thanks. That's from Nate. Uh, that that is uh, a anal- that's analytics. That's analytics seeping into the game of basketball. And advanced analytics say you should only take. You know, shot, basically layups and threes. And that, you know, analytically speaking, uh, the most inefficient shot in basketball is the mid-range jump shot. And listen, I get it. I'm not going to sit here and be one of those, like, cavemen that argue with numbers. But I think with with analytics, especially with basketball, it's kind of like – I always love what Jalen Rose said. Analytics should be a tool in the toolbox – but analytics shouldn't be the entire toolbox think about this and i know this is kind of crazy but like who are who are two of the greatest scorers of all time in the history of basketball kareem abdul jabbar and michael jordan what were their signature go-to shots mj was the fadeaway right mid-range Kareem was the sky hook, which was kind of like a mid-range. Hell, even Carl Malone. You Go check the scoring books, see where Malone's at, at the top. He was a great mid-range player. I just think that, first of all, I'm just a fan of taking the best available shot within the flow of the offense. And if that happens to be a mid-range jumper, it happens to be a mid-range jumper. Great. And, you know, the other thing is, oftentimes in big moments against good teams, they aren't going to let you get all the way to the rim. And they also likely won't let you get off a clean three. So sometimes the mid range is the the spot for, for a big shot. So I I don't know. I'm not anti analytics in basketball. I think there is some value in it with, uh, with hoops, but I, I do think this, the sport where analytics are most effective is baseball. Why? because, Baseball scenarios are a much more controlled environment. The variables are usually fairly steady and similar, right? Because everything starts from a standstill, right? Okay, lefty versus lefty, runner on first, blah, 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 blah. But what I'm saying is each play is much more controlled when you run the numbers on it. When basketball just isn't quite like that, there's so many different variables that you have to dig into what maybe just that final number says. So, I understand what coach Hoiberg is saying, and I think to a certain extent most people would would agree with, you know, you can't argue with what numbers spit out. But I just I think there are a lot of different sides to this mid-range analytics discussion we see with basketball. That that's that's how I see it. Next question comes from my cousin Scott. Shout out to my cousin Scott. See you at Thanksgiving, Doug. Uh he says, "Nick, I spend way too much time over over analyzing Nebraska football. Therefore, don't have the time to read up on Fred Hoiberg. Give me the X's and O's of what to expect from a Fred Hoiberg team. What am I looking at if the machine is humming? On top of that, what? how does a Doc Sadler defense fit with a Hoiberg offense? Okay, good question, Scott. Shouts out to Scott. First of all, I mean, we'll, we'll go over a lot of it. The, they want to play fast, obviously, right? That's So when it's humming, like, yeah, what does it look like when it's humming? Well, they're going to be flying up and down the floor. That's obvious. That's the first thing. The team playing with great pace, really flying up and down the floor. But in the half court, Fred Hoiberg in, in the half court, the first thing is there's going to be a lot of ball screens, and ball screens from different angles, meaning you know going to the sideline, coming to the middle, coming uh, flat uh, with uh, you know the the screeners back uh, facing the basket, like pick, repick, a lot of different angles, different spots on the floor with different personnel involved. Might be a guard setting a, a ball screen for a big, like crazy stuff. And the big thing is having the necessary shooting on the floor to put the help side defense in a predicament. I hope I'm not getting too crazy here. but Meaning, oftentimes, the off-ball defenders when defending ball screens, meaning the ones that aren't involved in the ball screen, they're the ones that have to help out on the roll man. But if they're guarding a great shooter, they're going to be reluctant to help. Think about if you got Steph Curry. You're guarding Steph Curry in the corner and Clay Thompson comes off a ball screen and here comes Draymond Green rolling to the basket. It might be your responsibility to kind of, to, to help buy time for your defender to get back to Draymond Green on the roll, but that would require you to step off Steph Curry. So guess where that ball's going, going right to Steph, probably a three going in same school of thought with Hoiberg and, and their offense. You see this with Creighton. I mean, their offenses are very similar. So, you, you have to have shooting on the floor. That, that's the other thing. So pace and threes. And the, the thing that, that most separates Hoiberg to me is he loves playmaking big guys. You know, Niang, Royce White, even one of the, I, I think Kevin Cross has some of the stuff that, that, like, I can see why they like Kevin Cross. Like I, from the moment I saw him play, I'm like, totally get it. Totally see why he's maybe the type of guy that Fred Hoiberg would be like, I like that guy. So whether it's Kevin Cross at the five or someone else, even at the four, oftentimes you, when you, when you look at it, big guys defensively aren't great at fighting through ball screens or fighting dribble penetration. So naturally, if you've got a playmaking big guy that can handle the ball and make plays, you can really exploit that and be a difficult team to deal with. I mean, Niang was a, a nightmare at Ohio at Iowa State. So those would be the, the the big three things to me are pace, three point shooting, and playmaking bigs. And with how that ties into Doc Sadler and the defense, uh, I think the thing that that Doc Sadler will do is be a team that can switch and have you know four to five guys on the floor that can go, guard multiple positions, be, be able to switch kind of one through four. You know, Hoiberg always talks about wanting versatile offensive players. Well, that can spill into into defense as well. Think about like, you know, so Texas Tech last year was the number one ranked Ken Palm defense. Texas Tech switches one through four. And it takes people out of their sets, out of their pet plays, and it forces teams to play one-on-one. And the reality is the majority of teams aren't great at that if you have the defensive personnel that can guard one through four. In switching. So that's how I would uh that's how I'd how I'd answer that in terms of what you're looking for with a uh with a Fred Hoyberg team X's and O's wise in defense. Next question comes from uh Brendan on Twitter. Says Nick, who's your sleeper team in both the Big East and the Big Ten? Uh, I would say in the in the Big East, I will say Providence, just because I'm a I'm a big believer in Ed Cooley, and you know they had a rough year last year because for the first time they didn't have an elite point guard, and you know they went from Bryce Cotton to Chris Dunn to uh, to Kyron Cartwright, and last year they didn't have one. This year they got a, tr- a good PG and UMass transfer, LeWayne Pipkins. He averaged five assists a game. He had a hundred over a hundred assists for two straight seasons. You know, he's a he's a he's a pretty darn good player. And you know, that'll allow AJ Reeves, David Duke, focus on scoring, Alfa Diallo, six, seven versatile studs. So I think Providence is a sleeper. The the team in the Big Ten that I would say is a sleeper would be Illinois. I think uh Brad Underwood's a really good player. Uh, they really only lost one guy. They return a good amount of their core. Dosumu uh, is their stud guard who's uh he's gonna be I mean he's a pro. He he's a pro. Trent Frazier is a really good guard as well that can score. I think the way they defend, uh, how hard they play, and those guys getting a year of experience, like I think Illinois is a team to keep an eye on. That Those would be my, uh, my sleepers in the Big East and the Big Ten. Uh, boom on Twitter. Next question. Says, Nick, how would you handle the size disadvantage? Nebraska will most likely encounter much of the season. Uh, good question because obviously they're a small team. I I think the first thing I'd try to do is speed the game up. Pick up three-quarter court, really pressure the ball, try to get the game really moving at a high clip. I I, I say this all the time. Size gets negated in an open-floor, fast-paced game. Where size becomes impactful is when it's a slower-paced, half-court game. That's when size really sinks its teeth into you. So the first thing I do is try and do all you can to speed the game up. Second thing I do is trap the post. Creighton did this for Doug McDermott's whole senior year, and the ring. I, the reason I bring that up is that team was really undersized. Creighton started Doug McDermott and Ethan Rage at the 4 and the 5 spot, and both those guys are basically six seven, And they survived, number one, because they were pretty much t- two best shooters in the country, but they survived defensively because they trapped the post and they got great at rotating out of it. So, you know, ball goes into the post, boom, post double, uh, gets the ball out of the post, and, you know, it's it's good because oftentimes post players aren't great passers, not great decision makers. But, you know, it's it's not ideal because oftentimes you're leaving the three-point line vacant when you're doubling, so you need to have urgency when you're scrambling and recovering out of it. Um, and you also got to know scatter report on who's on the floor that are really good shooters and who are not-so-good shooters, and then kind of scramble accordingly. Now it's a little bit scary because you know Nebraska's having a hard time just just naturally communicate and handle things so if you add trap in the post to it that's hard I mean that Creighton team had a bunch of veteran God Chapman Gibbs smart guys that knew how to scramble out of things um and then there needs to be a gang rebounding mentality like all five guys cleaning up the glass you, you know you can't just say all right Kevin Cross and Ivan Wadrago, you go get 15 boards like it's got to be a it's got to be Javay Green gets four and Burt gets three and Mac gets five and Cheatham gets three and you, you know it's got to have to be kind of that so that'd be th- those would be be my ideas and how to maybe try to to deal with the size disadvantage Dave on Twitter says will Creighton finally get steady play from the point guard and from whom Mince Marcus Zagorowski someone else Mince is more of a combo guard and how much time will Zagorowski get there well, to answer your question, it's definitely Marcus Zagorowski. He, he will, without question, be the, be the guy he's, he's going to be the point guard all year. And I've been outspoken. I think that guy's a stud. I, I'm all in on him. I think he's one of the most, if not the most underrated players in the big East, he can pass, he can get to the rim, he can shoot the three. He, he's a great player. So to answer Dave's question, yes, the Jays will get steady point guard play from, from Marcus Zagorowski. No question about it. Um, then there was – I got to have that question, and now I lost it. Uh, the, 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 a really interesting question comes via Twitter from uh, Nick. says says, uh, how did Kansas basketball tradition slash fan support affect players? Uh, was it a burden? Was it a motivator? Wondering if Nebraska's tradition and unwavering support is actually holding us back in some way that's from nick so so in my 2 years at kansas i only remember the the tradition the fan support being a positive that that's that was how i viewed it and now I do remember the losses feeling all the more devastating. But here's the thing with that that devastation you feel. We were devastated with the losses, losing to Bucknell in the NCAA tournament or getting upset by Richmond at home or something like that. We were devastated with those losses because we wanted to win and we were competitive, right? It wasn't like we were in the locker room like, God, man, Gary Bedore with the Lawrence Journal World is not going to write a horrible column. And man, oh, man, these fans are going to... No, it was just we wanted to win because we wanted to win. If that makes sense. But so I can only remember the support being a positive thing. I mean, the crazy thing was, you know, I don't know how they do it now, but you, the student sections used to have to camp out days, you know, a week in advance for, to, to have their, hold their spots in the student section. So you'd literally be like, as you're walking to practice at Allen Fieldhouse in the halls, you'd be like stepping over other students that are in sleeping bags and in chairs, waiting in line in the games, like two or three days, like that'll motivate you, you know? But I, I remember only the positives from that. I mean, for me, I, I, and I loved it all. So I used to do this thing where, you know, during the, during the National Anthem where Kansas, the players face, they, flay, they face all the, the, the jerseys hanging in the rafters. And during the National Anthem, I used to always look up at Wilt and Danny Manning, and I would just be like, man. This is fucking cool. You know what I mean? Like this. This is man. If I get in, man, I'm I'm bringing it. You know what I mean? And I think everybody felt that. Everybody felt that. So I I viewed it as a positive. One one of the things that was crazy is kind of. I remember. I, I wish I remember what this was called. So in the Kansas student newspaper, there was something called man. It might have been like open mic or open line. I can't remember what it was called, but. Basically, it was a number you could call and you'd leave a message. And then, the way I understand it is that message would get transcribed and put into the paper. Kind of silly, right? And a lot of it was. It was like, hey, Miller Light's better than Bushlight, says whoever, you know. But sometimes you'd get the student newspaper and you'd read some nasty things in that section about, you know, the team or players at times. And what's amazing is I remember like thinking like how crazy that was. And what's amazing is that is basically Twitter now. Like <laughs> and it's it's directly to you. But to answer this question, I remember being a positive, man, because I viewed I viewed that burden of responsibility of the tradition as a motivator, not a negative. Again, seeing the the Final Four and National Championship stuff hung up and the Wilt and Danny Man, like it just lit a fire in all of us. And you know, to you know, with what Nick's question is, like. Sometimes I think you got to say it out loud. Like, so what we, we want people, we want not Nebraska fans to not care. Like that fan should stop caring. That would, then Nebraska would start. Like, I just don't, I don't, I don't know if I connect those dots. I mean, I see what the spirit of what he's saying, but I also think you got to say out loud what the solution is, but what is tough. Cause it is a tricky thing. What's tough is when you get so far removed from the heyday that it, that it doesn't resonate with the current guys. That's when it gets hard. Because what's weird is Nebraska has tradition, but so much time has elapsed since that tradition was winning and flourishing that the players now like they're not upholding that standard, they have to like rebuild a standard. You know like that that's the difference like the the 1995 team was was had had to hold Uphold the standard set by the 94 team. And the 97 team had to hold up the standard of 94, 95, and so on and so forth, right? But it's been 20-plus years. So, Husker fans, you sit there and you scream, hold up the standard. To me, Nebraska is is more in build the standard than hold the standard mode right now, if we're being real. That's not to say to poo-poo the past and just forget about it. But you know you know there's that saying of like you're either a builder or a maintainer, well, from you know nineteen seventy to two thousand or whatever, Nebraska was a bunch of maintainers where they would maintain and then pass it on. The reality is they they have to be builders now, they're not maintainers. what are they maintaining You know I mean it's hard to maintain something that occurred you know, 25 years ago. And, and so I think they got to be builders now. And when that's the case, tradition maybe isn't as impactful in the moment. So that, that's how, how I would, would, how I kind of see all that. That's just me. God, those are some good questions. All right, we'll leave it at that. We're about at 45 minutes here. Uh, be on the lookout for uh, for some more pods uh, dropping this week. We'll drop one on Thursday. We'll get you set for, uh, for the Wisconsin game. And then going to be covering some more hoops, you know, Creighton's in action uh, against Michigan on Tuesday night. Have some thoughts on that uh, as well. And then, of course, be on the lookout for the recap pod for Nebraska and Wisconsin. Uh, Bo, Robert, Rude, and yours truly will have you covered uh, on Sunday, recapping uh, Nebraska and Wisconsin. So we got tons of good stuff on the pod. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review the pod. Uh, I appreciate you guys tuning in. Until next time, peace. Parkville Media Production.